conventional zoning is not going to provide the toolkit that you really need to make sure that the the development that you get is creating the the type of district that has a strong sense of place and is going to appeal to to people as a place to live or work. Welcome to the Placemaking Podcast. Podcast. The show geared at helping real estate developers learn and understand important aspects of the development process while improving communities one at a time. Each week, we'll discuss major facets of the real estate development process with industry professionals. Now, here's your host, Matthew Lowe's. Hello and welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining the show. I'm really excited about our guest today. Mike is a good friend of mine and president of Near Southside Inc. here in Fort Worth, Texas. Mike took over as NSI's president in 2018 after leading the organization's planning and development efforts for 12 years. Mike joined NSI in early 2006 after six years with the City of Fort Worth's planning department where he managed the comprehensive planning division. Mike has served on the board of directors for the Fort Worth Transportation Authority and on the Fort Worth City Planning Commission. He's a founding chairman and continues to serve on the board of Fort Worth Bike Sharing Inc. So in addition to those development and placemaking initiatives, NSI is also responsible for a wide variety of promotional programs, including festivals and events that attract thousands and a wide range of business assistance initiatives there in near Southside. So in this episode, we're going to discuss the basics of form-based code, common objections for this type of code, and what situations offer the best opportunities to introduce form-based code. I'm excited to dive into this one. And as always, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe the show and share with your friends that might be interested. So without further ado, let's start the show. Hey, welcome to the show, Mike. Glad to be here. <laughs> I I am extremely excited for this one. You know, after talking to you for two seconds, you know that you're extremely excited about planning, city planning and an urbanism and it's just a fun conversation so i figured who best to discuss this uh topic with than uh, yourself well i'm honored matt I, I appreciate it and you're right i like i like talking shop so uh this should be fun <laughs> perfect perfect well I, I mentioned a little bit earlier in the the introduction your your experience and your background, but I'd like to hear a little bit more from you about uh, what your background is and tell us a little bit about the near south side. Sure thing. I I consider myself uh, uh, one of the most fortunate planners uh, in that I get to work in an area where I'm I'm focused on the the same district every day and and it happens to be a really cool place and one that I'm attached to just personally and have been since since I was a kid. So I'll back up a little bit. Um, I grew up in Fort Worth and, you know, when I was when I was growing up here, I did not anticipate that my future would would be here long term. 
So I, I left when I was 16 years old, went off to, to boarding school last couple of years of, of high school, then went off to, to college and, and then moved to a, a, a city on the East Coast. And so, you know, after Fort Worth, I, I was in New Jersey, Nashville, Tennessee, Charlotte, North Carolina. And then when I was in Charlotte, I really started to focus. I was I was working, you know, it was a bad job. Uh, market at the time that I graduated from college and so me and a couple of buddies just picked a city that where the job market wasn't as bad as it was most places and so we mm-hmm. picked Charlotte and I don't know if you've spent much time in Charlotte it's beautiful it is it really is and, and a lot of the the progress that you've seen there you know over the last you know 20 years that was just getting started when I was there I was working for a mortgage company, sort of the, the only job I could get and just needed to, you know, be independent and make some money and, <laughs> and, you know, start the next chapter. And while I was in Charlotte, I really caught the bug of being interested in the city that I was living in, the neighborhood. I was living in a, in a cool old neighborhood called Wesley Heights, and it's right on the, the edge of downtown, sort of near the new football stadium that they had just built um, while I was there. And saw that the neighborhood has a lot in common with uh, Fairmount in that it's it's this great historic, um, you know, mixed. It's it's a diverse and um, it's it's diverse, you know, socioeconomic wise. It's got a lot of diversity. It's uh, it's mixed use, not in that, you know, you don't have the coffee shops right in the middle of the neighborhood, but you're you're bordered by these great mixed-use activity streets that had had, you know, they'd seen some rough years and were sort of bouncing back. And so I I didn't really know how to channel that interest into a career necessarily because I wasn't really familiar with urban planning as a, you know, a, a program that, where you could go back to graduate school and, and study it in depth. I wasn't familiar with that as a career path, but fortunately I had a good family friend uh, who was he was the mayor of Charleston, South Carolina, and had, oh, had wow. been mayor for a long time. A guy named Joe Riley, who's if you don't know about Joe, his record in Charleston was just remarkable. And so he, I sort of, I remember I, I, I sent him a letter saying, "Hey Joe, here are my interests, and <laughs> I, I want to go back to school. You know, how you 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 get the bug occasionally." Yep to, you know, maybe you're out of school, but, you know, you still want to dive into something that you're passionate about and, and you get the, the bug to go back and, and study more. Right. And so that's what happened. And, and Joe gave me some guidance about, you know, different career paths, whether, you know, it be urban design or architecture or landscape architecture or planning. And, you know, he he told me, read these books, gave me a handful of, of books. And, and, you know, Jane Jacobs, uh, Death and Life of Great American Cities was <laughs> the first. I was going to ask you if, what uh, what a couple of those titles were. I I just finished that one probably uh, a month ago. That was uh, there's a, a lot in there. There's <laughs> and it, it, I mean, it's you can. You know, it's it, what's funny. It's one of those books that everybody claims to have read. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I, don't, I don't know if, if it if it always matches up with uh, the people that actually have. But for me, it's it's a it's an incredible 
book, and for me, it was a life changer. At the same time, you know, that was talking about Greenwich Village in the in the 60s, and and right. while I could relate to some of it, it was right along at the same time the Congress for the New Urbanism was getting started, and Joe pointed me to them, to that group, and said, "Hey, you should come down to Charleston." for the Congress, the annual Congress of the New Urbanism. And so it was this group that had just really gotten together a few years before that, that was really outlining a new, uh, a new vision for the way that we built, way that we build cities and really for the country as a whole. And I went down there and this was before I had applied to graduate school and, and I was blown away the, the charter for that group, the Congress for the New Urbanism, anybody that reads that charter, I think that their the principles outlined in that charter are, you know, just the most solid foundational, you know, just bedrock principles that should guide the way that we build our cities and, and it's everything from, you know, approaches at the regional level to, you know, guidance to in, for individual buildings and building types. And so that whole process and, and environment that I was in sent me on the path to, to go back to graduate school. And I, I did that and I got a degree from, uh, I was in the planning program at Harvard's Graduate School of Design and graduated in 99. And to my surprise, when I was looking for jobs, one of the first job openings that I saw a job listing on the APA website was in Fort Worth, Texas. <laughs> so I, in uh, circle. <laughs> full circle, not expected, convinced my wife that who was from Charlotte, North Carolina, I met in Charlotte Okay. and, you know, very attached to the East coast. I was attached to the East coast. We, we had, you know, connections to South Carolina. I've been going there since I was a kid. Did not think that we would end up back in Fort Worth, but we did. <laughs> we did. I ended up in the city of, in the city's planning department, worked there for six years, then jumped over to what is now near Southside Inc. Give us a, a, a picture of what this area looks like in Fort Worth. It. All right. So it's it's typical of, of older districts in American cities that are downtown adjacent, usually built out. Um, in the decades prior to the Second World War. So sort of the heyday of development for the near south side in Fort Worth was the early 1900s, you know, 1900 to, you know, really the, the late 30s. And in that time period, you really saw pretty much the complete development of the district that we're working on now to revitalize. And when it was originally developed, it was a streetcar network that really formed the kind of infrastructural um, support system for the the community, which was a it was a, a mixed use, mixed income, um, very diverse land use pattern, all on a you know a, a very urban street grid with a pretty dense network of streetcar lines that really attached the the neighborhood areas to jobs that were located within our district and of course more jobs located downtown. Mm -hmm. So that was 
you know, it was it was doing well. It was there were sections of the near south side that were, you know, very affluent. And, you know, Thistle Hill is this old mansion that's still in place uh, today. And that area around Thistle Hill up on Pennsylvania Avenue near 8th Avenue, that was called Quality Hill. That was where the the most wealthy folks in Fort Worth would live. And um, it was, you know, right near Harris Hospital, which was built in the 1930s. And uh, All Saints Hospital was down 8th Avenue. And that was that dated back uh, even older than, than Harris. And so really from the get-go, you had this mix of, of people living here, um, major institutional um, campuses. You had Williamson Dickey. Uh, you had Justin Boots. Um, all of these businesses, along with the, the city's first central high school, all of everything sort of located in close proximity on the same street grid. And um, those assets and the, the character from that era are still very much intact and today are a huge competitive advantage for us because those are not, you know, those aren't the defining characteristics of any neighborhood or district that has been built since the end of World War II. It's, it's very diverse. I mean, right. You got, like you said, you got industrial, uh, you've, you've got hospital, medical, you've got residential. I mean, there's pretty much every every type of zoning classification is in that district and interconnected in a way that is unlike most of the districts in Fort Worth. That's right. And, and it's, you know, we were, our, our district for those decades after the Second World War, when the, the trend was definitely downward, you know, this was the, the time in our country's history where new houses were being built, you know, just a little bit further out. They were targeting, you know, baby boomer uh, generation and their parents that were wanting to uh, own their own home. Uh, they could drive their own car. They could afford to have a car or two. They could, you know, live on a larger piece of property. And so that's when Ridgely and, and sort of that first generation of, of suburbs after our central city neighborhoods was built. And so for the near south side, that was that was the beginning of really decades of disinvestment and, and ultimately blight. Um, that was the the, you know, at the same time that there was a lot of disinvestment, leaving vacant old buildings along these roadways. This was still the district where you had to go to see the doctor. And so, mm-hmm. so still, had, still had a lot of people visiting, um, if only for that. You know, if they had a relative in the hospital or they needed to go see the doctor, then they were going to the medical district. Mm-hmm. And that, that became the identity for our area for so long. When I was growing up, it was the medical district. And and my connection to this area was through my parents that both worked in medical profession uh, in this area. And that's how I knew it. You know, one of my first jobs at JPS, uh, Hmm. it was, you know, go to work, leave when you get off at five o'clock and don't stick around because (laughs) there's not, there's nothing else going on here. Um, that was also the time when 
there was recognition by all of the hospital leaders and the, the community leaders that, you know, their times were, were tough for the near south side. Let's all work together to revitalize the district. And as a result of that collaboration, there was a strategic plan that was commissioned that was completed in 1995, recommended the creation of our organization. So our organization really got up and running in 96. And the another recommendation was to create a tax increment finance district. And that came together in 1997. Mm -hmm. And then another recommendation was to start to work to update the development standards. And that we can get into the how, how things came together for that. That was that was how, you know, I was telling you before that it really started when I was at the planning department with the a couple of new mixed use zoning classifications. The mm -hmm. the code that ultimately became the Trinity Uptown code. We worked on that before I left uh, the city. And okay. I, think, I think it was adopted after I'd left. But as soon as I came over here, I started uh, working. And this was in 2006 started working on a, a new code that sort of that borrowed from the ones that I had worked on at the city, the mixed use ordinance and in, in Trinity Uptown, but created a, a tailored form based code for the near south side that ultimately was went to the city council in December of 2007 for approval and took effect in January of 2008. For everyone listening, what what makes a form-based code and how is that different from your typical zoning that people well, are used to seeing? The, uh, the traditional zoning ordinances are referred to, you know, in the, the planner world, it's Euclidean zoning. And that <laughs> refers to a, a, a Supreme Court case. The city of uh, Euclid was involved in that case. Euclid, Ohio, I believe. So the zoning... You know, conventional zoning ordinances based on that Euclidean model that the, the focus is on creating districts that are really oriented around the land use that is allowed within that designated area. And remember, this was really sort of post-war, new auto-oriented type of mm -hmm. development that also was a response to some urban um, nuisance concerns that, you know, dated back to, you know, the, the first uh, industrial age progress, you know, where, you know, you've heard stories of tenements in, in New York mm -hmm. City where, you know, people were just packed as, as tight as possible and and air and water and just the basic, you know, concerns, uh, you know, basic human conditions were the top concern. And, you know, you would have industrial, very, you know, high pollution, nuisance generating industrial uses in close proximity to where these people were living in poor conditions. So zoning was in reaction to that. We got to separate the places where people live from where they work. We've got to separate the industrial sections of town from those that are just general commercial sections. Um, and so 
conventional zoning, it's as simple as classifying districts by those land uses. So you'll have, you know, usually in, like in Fort Worth, it's based on a, an alphabet uh, classification system where the first letters are the residential classifications and then you get into the commercial. So, you know, A, single family zoning, B, two family zoning, C is a, a low density multifamily, D is high density multifamily. Mm-hmm. And within all of those residential classifications, you can't have any commercial uses. Even within the, you know, D high density multifamily, you couldn't you couldn't have a coffee shop within that uh, zoning classification. So on the commercial side, you've got E, you know, neighborhood commercial, G, intensive commercial, those sorts of categories. And then industrial, you've got the I, light industrial, J, medium industrial, and so forth. So flashback to the early 2000s, it was illegal throughout almost all of the near south side to build buildings that were mixed use, you know, you couldn't have a storefront on the ground floor with people living above it. And that mm-hmm. was that was a typical condition when the buildings on Magnolia were built, for example. You know, where Shinjuku Station now is, mm-hmm. apartments above that. That project was actually a pioneering effort to that led to a, a big change in our zoning ordinance. So just to try to bring that building back, it had been zoned in a way, I think it had been zoned G commercial, where it was illegal for them to uh, restore those apartments and have people live in them. And so they had to go through all of these, you know, tortured steps to get the zoning, a special zoning classification, you know, PD based site specific zoning. So anyway, that, really sort of put things in motion to a broader reform. When I started drafting the or the what became the form-based code, we had already gone through the effort to rezone all of Magnolia uh, based on one of these mixed-use classifications. Oleander Walk had this really cool uh, MU-based PD that required residential within 200 feet of Oleander, so it would be mm-hmm. a neighborhood and not just, you know, doctor's offices. And we were able to, to build on those efforts. But throughout 90% of the district, it was still just this patchwork of single-use commercial and, and residential and industrial districts that we had to work with all of the owners that had been you know, they'd been owning their property for a long time in most cases, and they were used to the rights and the and the standards that were applied through their existing zoning standards. We had to convince them that the rules that we had put in place along Magnolia and Oleander, that that same set of rules would work well for their property and mm-hmm. educate them on what what the heck a form-based code is. <laughs> and th- so that was, that was sort of the next big step. And we're, we're fortunate that we made it through that, but you know, there, there are a lot of differences between the traditional zoning and the form-based code. I'm just curious, how many meetings did it, uh, <laughs> did you guys have <laughs> community meetings? 
Well, I tell you what, this is what I tell people, um, you know, in, in telling the story and particularly providing some advice to other other districts or cities on what approach to take. There are some consultants out there that they draw up the the most elegant, beautiful codes you've ever seen. And I am not one to say that our code stands up well against, you know, those professionally, like well uh, illustrated, those those types of codes, they're beautiful. And and, and I, I have all the praise in the world for them. There is a lot to be said to doing a code in-house because you those meetings that you asked about, it's not just the community meetings where you try to reach as many people as possible in the same room and you make a presentation and then you say, does anybody have any questions? We had dozens and dozens of individual discussions in our office with landowners so that we could talk to them one-on-one and we could answer any question they had. We could, we could make changes to what was then just a draft version of the code based on their particular conditions that we felt, well, that's not just going to apply in this case. It's going to apply to other, other folks. And, and that was, there was so much benefit to that. The fact that we could, you know, be very nimble and meet with people as needed go see them that, you know, working with an outside consultant, they wouldn't have been able to do that. You would have been paying, you know, thousands of dollars in, in travel fees and, and trying to set up, you know, coordinate calendars. And that just, that's right. not going to happen. Essentially saying conventional zoning was set in place essentially just to separate different uses, different classifications of use. Form-based code is more of an approach of taking the existing aspects of the community and seeing what fits best there. Right. Is that essentially? That, that is. That that gets to the heart of it. The, you know, like you said, the traditional zoning is focused on you know keeping these uses separate and applying a very basic set of development standards, which are usually your building can't be taller than X number of feet. Um, you you have to set your building back Y number of feet from the street, and uh, you might have some building material standards, but usually it's just setback height, and that's the those maybe are the, landscape and there might be a <laughs> landscape requirement and and so forth. Typically, all of those standards, um, with you know with the exception of height, but but setbacks can be a major impediment to any type of walkable urban orientation for new buildings. Landscape standards can apply an arbitrary requirement to have some sort of, you know, front yard greenery that Mm -hmm. in an urban environment might not be appropriate or desirable. So I'll switch to the form-based code. You know, what, what are the primary characteristics for the form-based code? The form-based code flips it around to where there is much, much less focus and attention paid to separating land uses. In in general, most form-based codes feel that mixing residential and non-residential is a good thing, with you know, particularly within these urban areas where historically that was the pattern. You know, as long as those 
uses are compatible, then everybody, everything should not only be able to, to get along well, but often, you know, older buildings and, and newer buildings that are built to last a long time, they should be able to adapt over time and it might start out as residential and then become an office building or and then become converted back to to loft apartments, for example. And we've seen all of that happen um, within our district. So the focus is on instead for new construction, the form-based code applies a set of rules that are really based on those fundamental urban design principles of creating a highly walkable environment where with a, a lot of emphasis on the, the public realm that's located between the buildings so that the code ensures that the building is oriented and helps frame that outdoor public space along streets so that it, it has a feel like you are in a, a comfortable place to walk. It feels a little bit like an outdoor room because you've got the, the buildings are these nice edge conditions that sort of form the walls for this outdoor room. You have, you know, a pedestrian environment that is that is designed to be functional and not just meet the bare minimum standards. So instead of just a narrow four foot sidewalk right next to a curb, next to a high speed roadway. <laughs> you got a few of those around, don't you? <laughs> right. That was the default. Um, and, you know, in our street design standards. And so the other thing that the form-based code allows, in addition to, you know, calling for, you know, a certain amount of transparency or fenestration along that street-facing facade, it, it also allows for the code to call for specific design uh, and Im improvements within that public right-of-way uh, the sidewalk and the actual street itself. So, for example, in our code, if you build a new building, you know, anybody that built a new building in, in Fort Worth, you are required to construct your section of sidewalk in front of that building. Well, in, in our district, you are required to construct that roadside environment, which, yes, does include a sidewalk, but the sidewalk is a little bit wider than the typical requirement, and you are required to install pedestrian light posts and street trees next to the curb in between the curb and the walkway. So that as you're walking down that new sidewalk, as development fills in and there's probably some older buildings that have the same condition already, you have this walkway environment that you should, you should feel that you're buffered from that traffic because there are trees and lights in between where you're walking and the, the cars on the street. Um, you should feel like you are within this sort of protected, uh, comfortable, enclosed space because you have the building on one side and you've got this row of trees and, and lights and other furnishings like bike racks and benches next to the curb. And so just those, those design uh, and, and development requirements that you can, you can incorporate into a form-based code 
they play a huge part in creating that environment that really doesn't, you know, that's all outside of what a building looks like and what uses go into a building. So that's, that's what has been really rewarding to see is just those, you know, simple roadside requirements um, have really gone, they've played a big part in um, creating these cool walkable streets that, you know, aren't Magnolia Avenue or South Main Street. You know, you can walk down Adams Street in um, the Oleander Walk neighborhood just north of Magnolia, and you have townhouses that are built, they're set back just a, you know, a maybe five feet from the sidewalk to allow for a nice little stoop. There's a, a five foot wide sidewalk, which isn't super wide, but it's wide enough for two people to walk comfortably next to each other. There's a row of trees there. There's some on-street parking, all of those elements that, you know, don't even speak to the design of the buildings really play a huge role in creating the, the feel and appeal of that street. And then on the building, we have the, the code, while it doesn't dictate architectural style, it's, it's totally neutral. You can, you can, you know, go in a very contemporary direction, you know, and, and a lot of architects these days are, are doing that. They're, you know, they're, they're designing buildings of using today's technologies and materials. And, and certainly, you know, the architectural statement is this is a building built in, 2019, 2020, um, there are, there's enough flexibility where there are some architects that say, you know, certainly we're going to be using the technologies and materials of, of today, but we can, we can do that in a way where, you know, some of these traditional and timeless design elements are incorporated into these buildings. And that works great also, you know, it, but the code is not our code particularly is not calling for adherence to one particular style or another. Right. So some of the codes are much more prescriptive than that. Um, but we, we chose not to be. Right. Well, ultimately the form based code is meant to have some flexibility, right? That's, that's right. That's the goal is to provide a, a little more flexibility and, and promote, like you said, the, the pedestrian relationship to, to the buildings as well. That's right. That's right. There's oh. one, uh, let me put on one, one other aspect of this, and this was probably the, this is how, actually how we were able to convince our city council representative at the time when this was, when this went to city council, we convinced our council member, Wendy Davis, to, to apply for this, what was I think at the time, the largest rezoning ever in the city's history, <laughs> with, which is a big, you know, politically, that's, that's, that's huge. That's a big move. You know, hey, we're going to change the rules for 1,400 acres of, of property here. And, you know, that's, typically, a, that's uh, a lot for a councilman to, oh, yeah. councilwoman to, to support. I understand completely. It was so what the way that we convinced her that this was something that we would. And first of all, we said 
We will meet with everybody we have to. We will, before it gets to you, we will have the support that you need. Um, there might be a, a couple of detractors, but you know, before it gets to you, we're gonna we're gonna make sure that we've built as much consensus as possible. We were able to really, you know, convince her of the need by talking about how this would play defense against what we were seeing being built that was clearly incompatible with the, the great historic buildings and the, the urban character that had been there for so long. We were on our main streets. We were getting, you know, new medical facilities with a huge parking lot that, you know, set the building back a hundred feet from the street and, you know, single story, just, um, you know, Right next to a historic mansion, you would have a single-story medical office set back so far from the street with a big canopy driveway in the front. And we told her that project that we've just seen built in the last year, uh, this was back in 2007, um, we are vulnerable for that. We're, we're vulnerable to that happening on probably 90% of our major streets with the existing zoning. So mm -hmm. playing, playing defense against the incompatible development is a big, that was a big part and it's still a big part of the success of this code. The other, you know, the sort of the, the flip side to that is this code does not guarantee that every building that's going to be built is a superstar building. And there are, <laughs> You know, that's it's just ultimately you are you're working with developers and their design teams and, you know, some buildings work better than others. The, the good news is if everybody's playing by this basic set of rules that even if it's not, you know, a stellar piece of architecture, it's basically holding its, you know, the, the location and the orientation of the building is holding its place in that line you know it's it's a line of buildings and if one is a clunker but the other ones are pretty good and and all of them are performing roughly the same way then you know the outcome or the impact the negative impact of one building that's not great is really minimal right essentially you know like you're saying that the form based code provides control with moderate flexibility to to benefit the members within the community. Interesting. So what, what would it be an objection to, to use informed base code? All right. So we did, by the time we got to the city council, we had, we didn't have anybody object at the city council. I will say the first zoning commission hearing, we had a, a lot of people showed up that they'd received notices in the mail. They might've been absentee, landowners they they had not been in the loop and so a mm -hmm. lot of that was just sort of educating them but there were there were a couple of folks that you know ideologically they were opposed to any additional regulation beyond those basic standards that are included in the base zoning you know they they were okay with height and setbacks and you know what uses were allowed and that was it and that that to me is that's just it's more of an ideological opposition because right. 
what I was, what I attempted and, and was successful in really, I think all but one or two cases, I was able to tell them right now, you can only build commercial, uh, a commercial use on your property. If you choose to develop, if you support this zoning, the new zoning will allow you the flexibility of doing residential or commercial or mixing the two. And we don't know yet that your property is, you know, best suited for commercial or residential on a lot of, I mean, you've seen it in throughout the district where now they're, there are a thousand people living on Rosedale now, which, <laughs> you know, that, that was all zoned commercial that wouldn't even have been allowed. And so, you know, we were able to convince folks that we are expanding your property rights by allowing a greater list, a longer list of permitted uses. There were opposite, there was some opposition just to the, this is it's similar to that first ideologically based one, but there's some opposition from design professionals that say that no matter how flexible the standards, you will end up with a fairly generic or monochromatic outcome when it comes to architecture. Huh. And that was one where I just, you know, I had to say, hey, we're, we're not dictating style. We right. are, there are some, you know, uniform standards related to on the ground floor of a non-residential use building, you know, you have to have a certain certain amount of transparency and openings so that it's not blank walls along our street. But the way that you do that, you know, is not that's not a, a function of a particular architectural style. And so what we've seen play out, and they were a lot of these architects, they were used to working in South Lake and I think <laughs> Frisco at the time where, you know, they're very prescriptive as to right. the architects, the architectural style materials, all of that. And so they thought just sort of knee jerk, you know, hey, we're going to get that same level of design control. It's not played out that way at all. I think that anybody driving down our streets looking at newer buildings that have been built over the last 10 years since code was adopted, they would recognize that, okay, this is not a cookie cutter code at all. I will testify to that. Yeah. <laughs> there are some, <laughs> there are some unique structures in the near South side. Right. <laughs> so I think, I guess you could, Matt, you could have, you know, people that argue and we've heard this certainly from the, you know, Fairmount neighborhood has a, a contingency of folks that feel strongly that contemporary looking buildings adjacent to historic buildings is incompatible. And that is, well, and that's, it's, that's a general statement, but I think their focus is that you, you have to be very sensitive and, and with that adjacency. And I don't argue with that. Um, I would argue with the, a blanket, you know, statement that, Anything contemporary in a historic district is is definitely incompatible. So folks like that have argued that our design standards don't go far enough. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, I I think that the ideal code 
from my perspective or from your perspective or anybody's would probably be slightly different than the code that we have. But the one that we have reflects, you know, a, a balance of everybody's opinions and, and certainly what what we could come up with to to achieve the level of consensus that we ultimately did. Yeah, I mean, you you obviously can't you can't make everybody happy. Right. And the lack of des- design requirements really allows architects to to create some cre- creative spaces that really I think ultimately benefit the community. Most times architects understand bad design. <laughs> and uh and you guys work closely with the architects to where enough to where you know you get some input right it's not it's not the wild west of architecture out there no no so. but it's it's wild enough to, <laughs> for some yes <laughs> yeah. yeah so so the near south side is is a pretty special place what what situations uh, what communities would offer the best opportunity to introduce this type of form-based code? I think that any any older urban area, by older, you know, sort of developed in the the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, that that era, I would say is a automatically a good fit for this approach, and that. Conventional zoning is not going to provide the toolkit that you really need to make sure that the the development that you get is creating the the type of district that has a strong sense of place and is going to appeal to to people as a place to live or work. So automatic, uh, there there should be you know a uh, an effort in every American city, you know, for their their urban core to have a form-based coding approach. There have been cities that have done it, you know, that have said, you know what, this this system of a, a form-based uh, code approach that this system makes so much more sense and produces outcomes that are so much better than the old zoning that those cities have had a complete replacement of their zoning ordinance. So I think that, I think Miami has done that. I think Denver may have done that. And Austin, Austin tried to do it. That was politically, that was, you know, total fireball that just sort of, it just, it died. The process, that's the, you know, there, we, we could talk about the, the code and like we've been talking about sort of, you know, what standards are in there, what's the, what, what are the outcomes when it comes to the, the buildings and the streets that we're creating? The politics and the process are equally important, you know, obviously in getting the, the code adopted. And and then ultimately after it is adopted, the process for re- reviewing projects. So there's got to be a lot of thought given to that. We We didn't want to do... We didn't want to follow the exact same model that they had downtown, where they had a, a set of design guidelines with a lot of subjectivity, and every project had to be reviewed by the uh, downtown design review board. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so every every sign would be subject to review by that that body, and you know, if 
if you had a, a group that had been appointed with a certain perspective and that was different than the last group that had just dropped off, then the, the, the sense was that, all right, this is not a predictable environment for developers. We wanted, we wanted it to be easy to do the right thing and be approved quickly if you did the right thing by playing by all the rules. So you can if you if you comply with all of the standards in the near south side development standards our form based code then you are administratively approved by the staff in the city's planning department. And that's it, exactly what you want to hear if you're <laughs> exactly. you're in development. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's if you if you do have a, a waiver or you know one or more waivers where you just can't comply with with everything then we try to make that process as painless as possible. You know, it has to be reviewed by the Urban Design Commission that oversees our district and a few others that have similar codes. And we plug into the process by having our design review committee look at all of those cases. We have a meeting once a month, and all of those cases that are going to go to the Urban Design Commission come through our design review committee first, and we we stay within that same calendar. So you you submit your application to the UDC. You meet with us a few days after that. We have a conversation with you. Maybe there's some changes that come out of that. You make modifications. We've we've voted, uh, you know, taking a position to support or support modifications or not support. We go and testify at the UDC almost you know, I would say strong, strong majority of the cases we are supporting because we've been able to either understand and support their waiver request without any changes, or they've made some changes and, and made their project even better as a result of our conversation. So that 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 process ongoing is really important. It's an extremely special place there in the near south side. I enjoy working there, playing there maybe one day living there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you're working on some cool projects and I, I can't wait to see how, how things come together. Well, I appreciate your time. I know uh, well, your time is valuable. You, you got to run around quite a bit there in the near <laughs> South side and, and you did not disappoint. <laughs> uh, this was a great conversation.